Last week, I spent some time um, going through the first section of Hebrews chapter 9. And if you weren't here, feel free to uh, jump on the website. <coughs> jump on the website and, uh, and check it out. But basically what happened in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 to 10 is it went through everything that happened in the Old Testament. And uh, that was basically all the time leading up to Jesus coming and being born on the earth, right? And so uh, from creation right through, uh, God chose himself as a covenant God. And part of him being a covenant God was that he set up an earthly tent. Um, he calls it a tent that he would dwell in. And there were sections in this tent. So there was the most holy place, which held the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence with his people. And outside of that was a veil that stopped people from getting to God's presence because God's presence was so intense. His glory was so amazing uh, that nobody could get near without dying, literally without dying. And then and behind, beside that veil was a whole other room called the holy place. And then outside of that was an outer court. And, uh, and basically the rundown from last week is that uh, there were priests and priests did their job in the holy place. Um, that included trimming the wicks of candles. Um, that included uh, making sure incense was burn- burning. Uh, that included making sure there's fresh loaves of bread, uh, which symbolized God's people and all the different tribes of God's people. And, uh, and so the priests did all their work in the holy place. But then there was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where only one priest could go one time a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was where God set apart a day where the high priest, so not just the regular priest, the high priest, who would come and uh, he would go through like a week of ceremony leading up to that, of making sure, making sure that he wasn't impure himself, um, making sacrifices to make sure he was clean. And then he would come on this one day a year to come and bring sacrifices. There was animals' um, blood shed so that people's sins could be forgiven. One day, one high priest, once a year. And they would get to the end of that. And what Hebrews 9, 1 to 9 talks about is that that could never, ever clear the conscience or clear the inside of someone's heart. It could only ever deal with the external. It could only ever be an external symbol of what was actually going on or what should have been going on in people's hearts. And so what we're going to today is uh, 11 through 14. And, uh, and basically, it looks at the cleansing of the conscience and how Jesus and the work that he did in his bloodshed actually works to cleanse our conscience, actually cleanses inside of us, which nothing in the lead up could ever do. Only this one sacrifice. I also gave the example uh, that, uh, of conscience because the, the whole idea of conscience came up. Uh, the conscience, uh, I gave the analogy of a barking dog to compare to someone's conscience that just, just does not let up. When you sin or do what's wrong and you replay it over and over in your mind, you might have asked the other person for forgiveness. You may have even asked God for forgiveness, yet your conscience keeps reminding you over and over what you've done wrong. The sting of guilt remains like a barking dog that keeps you awake at night. You ever had that? Frustrating. But there is a hope. The hope is not in yourself. It's not in your repaying your wrongdoing to God, in your self-condemning thoughts and self-beating thoughts to somehow try and appease the guilt and pain of what you've done. It's not in hiding and isolating yourself to escape from what you've done. I finished with this quote and it said this, Conscience is not an enemy to be hated. So if you understand conscience, it's the, the inner, in, inside the innate ability to understand right and wrong. right? And everybody's been created with this. You all have, every single person sitting here has some level of conscience. The understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, Conscience is not an enemy to be hated, but a friend to be heeded. It's a great gift from God prodding you to seek asylum in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I I think that goes in the face of what happens today where conscience and guilt seems to be terrible, evil things. We shouldn't ever uh, accept that we're guilty for anything. In fact, we should work out how we cannot be guilty. And we should get a lawyer to work out how we cannot be guilty. And we can justify ourselves so that we don't have to feel the guilt and own the things that we do and the, the, the sins that we commit. That, that's sort of, I think, where, where we're at in our day. But then, if you, if you look at it as a Christian, 
This is what another guy uh, wrote. His name's Ed Welsh, and he's an author and biblical counsellor. He said this, The proclamation of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' death and resurrection is meaningless without the knowledge of personal sin. That means without the acknowledgement that I have done something wrong and something needs to be done about it. Unless you acknowledge that, Jesus' death and resurrection means nothing really. Nothing. The knowledge of sin, on the other hand, without forgiveness of sins, is deadly. Man, if all we ever get to is the point of, man, we're sinners, we're terrible people and we go against God and that's all we get to, bam, done. Well, that's pretty deadly as well, isn't it? That can mean slaving. I just spat all over the place. Glad someone's on the front row. So I've been thinking, it's not whether you feel guilty or not, because everyone at some point feels guilty. It's actually what you do in your guilt that matters. It's what you do in your guilt that matters. Where we head today in Hebrews is meant as a source of great reveling in Jesus and his work as most gloriously and intricate as it is, and to see what renders for our lives as transforming and life-giving. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. If you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever you've got, uh, open up there and we'll read together. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. And here's where it comes. But, so what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, so he's explained everything that's happened in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. And he says, but there's something better. There's something greater. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's an essence in there that that, that suggests that your conscience needs cleansing. Your conscience without God and without recognition of God needs cleansing. Your inner person, your heart needs cleansing. And Jesus does a pretty good job. He does an amazing job. Let's check it out. Christ is the final high priest. In fact, he's the great high priest. Hebrews 7 says this, verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, that means perfect, set apart, innocent, he'd done no wrong, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice day after day after day. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' work as the great high priest was final and complete, whereas the high priest who served in the lead up to Jesus was temporary and not completely effective in atoning for their sins and the sins of others. You've got to understand this part of, uh, of what Jesus Christ did. Everything in the lead up to deal with sin was not final. It was temporary. It could, it could only be an external representation of what was going on in people's hearts and therefore couldn't get deep down to be life-transforming and life-changing. I'm not sure if you uh, have considered when it, you do something wrong or when someone does something wrong against you, how enslaving that can be. Have you, have you ever thought of that? Have you ever felt that? The enslavement of when you've done something wrong and you've got to try and cover it up. The enslavement of when somebody wrongs you and sins against you and you're forever living in the trail of what they've done to you. Enslaving. And what this gets to is right down to the very depth of your heart for freedom. Not so that you'd continue to be enslaved, but so that you would be literally free. The the feeling and, and the sense of a clear conscience is second to none, isn't it? Second to none. And ultimately, what the Bible says and what we believe at the project, ultimately the only way that that can happen is through Jesus Christ. And here's how it gets cool. So Christ is the final high priest of the good things that have come. Jesus' works was evidenced by the good things that came as a result. It was neither purposeless nor fruitless. What Jesus did uh, brought about really good things. All right, brought about amazing things. 
And I'm not sure if you stop and think about this. You stop and ponder. Maybe you're a Christian and you sort of think about Jesus and it doesn't amaze you that much. Think. Think hard. Think deep about what Jesus has done. And it ought to inspire worship. It ought to inspire just an absolute dependence upon him. An absolute amazement of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. The interesting thing here is that it's actually not listed. The, the, things, the good things that is talked about is not listed. However, you could get specific and they probably include what the old sacrificial system could not deliver. And that this new system, the thing that Jesus Christ did, cleansed conscience and gave full access to God. In a wider view, these good things may also include the eternal redemption and the promised eternal inheritance. These are good things, aren't they? These are good things. Up until that point, only the high priest could go into the presence of God. Jesus Christ comes, literally the veil in the temple gets torn in two and opens up access for all to come to God. Doesn't matter their history, doesn't matter the, the mess that they're in. In fact, it's better that they acknowledge the mess that they're in and come to God, right? Open access, open access to God. The eternal redemption, we're going to look at that, and the promised eternal inheritance. What happens right now and what Jesus does right now has eternal significance. Most people, right, would know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Death does not mean the end. That's good news. But we'll have eternal life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's good news. But the good news doesn't come without bad news. That's what we've got to get to. Then, continues on, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The old, the tent, the thing that people built, right, literally that people built in the desert, the old was a temporary picture of the new and the greater and more perfect tent. Remember, if you remember back to last week, how much, how much stuff they talked about that was gold. Everything was covered in gold. Literally, it was covered in gold. So you walk in this place and it's dazzling, absolutely amazing. And you can imagine how incredible it would have looked if you were one of the priests who could actually go into the, whole, into the holy place. And then if you're the high priest, you could walk into the holy, holy of holies. You had to set it, like you had to burn incense so there'd be a cloud so that it, he couldn't get too close, right? That's how glorious it was, God's presence with his people. It represented something of great value and a certain level of perfection. Well, the only way for Jesus' sacrifice... And his work to be completely effective was to go into the greater and the more perfect tent, into heaven, the very place where God dwells. So when Jesus Christ lays down his life on the cross, and it's him who lays it down, right? Yes, he was killed, but it's him who ultimately gives his life up. He lays down his life and uh, he enters into the greater tent, into the most holy place. And that's a heavenly tent. He enters into heaven where... God dwells. So you see why God established such a royal tent for his dwelling place here on the earth. And it was so that it would foreshadow what was coming. The fact that this tent that Jesus went through was not made with human hands, not a part of creation, points to the fact that what was going on was not just a physical act. While what was, that was hugely significant, it was a spiritual act which brought great effect in the spiritual world. So Jesus Christ's death was not just a physical act uh, that people watched. What he was doing, what happened as he, as he died and as he was buried, that was, a, that was intensely um, impacting in the spiritual world. And so it wrought benefit not just in the physical. It didn't just change people physically. It actually changed people from the inside. And that would actually be worked out. This is why I think becoming a Christian is not just a physical act or the speaking of words or adding the name Christian to who you are right? Nobody becomes a Christian because they say they're a Christian. Just the same way I don't become a teacher just because I feel like I'm, oh, I'm going to be a teacher. <laughs> or I don't become a, uh, a bus driver, my father-in-law sitting here. I don't become a bus driver just because I say I'm a bus driver. I've got to go through a process. There's things that have to be done, right? In the same way, you can't just add the name Christian thinking, yeah, that'll somehow put me in good stead. That'll maybe make me a good person or something. 
No, that's not the way God works. It's not just a physical act, but it's a spiritual act which takes place in the soul. So out of this spiritual act of being redeemed by God through Christ's blood to belong to him comes the physical consequence of a life lived in good works that glorify God. This is the marks of a Christian, right? Um, The marks of a Christian is that they're changed internally, that God comes and redeems them. We're going to talk about redeeming in a minute. God comes and redeems someone from the inside and that that would overflow into the good things that would come on the outside. That's what God does. That's, that's how Jesus' sacrifice and his blood works. We're going to go through four things that redemption is. Redemption is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So if you remember, the high priest would go into the most holy place. He'd lift the veil tentatively and sort of crawl in into the most holy place to come into God's dwelling place. And he would make sacrifice for the sins of himself and his family and also for the sins of all the people, the unintentional sins of the people. Well, this is where Christ's sacrifice means far greater. They had to go in year after year after year after year and day after day and they'd have to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice so that they could keep atoning for their sins. Jesus Christ... You know the words he says, he screams it out right at the end. It is finished. And that's part of what he meant. All that work, all the animal sacrifices, all the things that the high priest had done and the priest had done was finished and he was opening up something brand new. Now, for some, this is just gruesome. You think animal blood dripping, being spurted all over the place. It's like a horror movie or something where there's vicious bloodshed of innocent people or animals. However, I think there's a a difference between a horror movie and this sort of bloodshed, right? In a horror movie, it tends to be just, just innocent slaughter. It's just blood going everywhere, right? It's just bloodshed. I tend to steer clear of horror movies. For me, it's, it's just a personal thing. But for me, I just, man, it just freaks me out. I can't sleep after horror movies. But for others, like I talked to some kids here at school and, and they just watch horror movies like it's nothing, you know. And, uh, and so it sort of means nothing. But this bloodshed is far different. Two things, I think, to realise about why God would command for the sacrifices of animals and not people. God placed greater value on human life than animal life. And when these two get mixed around, a human life becomes either equally as valuable as an animal life, which is, is, is not a healthy thing, or a human life becomes less valuable than the life of an animal and the animal receives greater protection. Which uh, There's a bit of an inkling in that, I think, in our own culture, where animals are equally as protected as human life. Now, I'm not saying we should just go and destroy animals. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't look after animals, but far less than looking after human life. And this is what God was doing. He was looking after human life. All the things that the animals did, the blood, the blood that they shed, was for the good of the people who they were shedding their blood for, for the good of the, the sacrifice that they were making. So God's intention was that humans were the most valuable of all his creation and that the blood had to be shed for the great offense of their sin before God. So this blood was not aimless or pointless animal sacrifice. It was a life poured out in death as a sacrifice for another. You hear the forward intention in that. It's not just aimless, pointless going and killing animals. No, their blood was meant for the good of the people. So what the sum total of all those animal sacrifices in in history could not accomplish, Jesus accomplished once for all with his own blood. And let me tell you, Jesus' blood, the blood that he gave, the blood that he poured out, was not aimless or pointless either. In fact, if you know anything about Jesus' blood, or you know anything about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, man, it's not aimless. He didn't do it for nothing wasn't just an empty point in history. No, it's life transforming. That's where we're getting to. It's, uh, it secured an eternal redemption. 
An eternal redemption. I wonder what you think about when you think redemption. Or to redeem. Maybe you go and redeem your petrol voucher. Down at Woolies. Uh, if you're cheap and nasty like me and you want to save money. Uh, it, maybe you want to go and redeem... I don't know, you, you put in there whatever you're thinking. You want to go and redeem something. So you pay a certain amount and you go and redeem whatever it is that you, you're going to redeem. So the first act of, aspect of redemption, which was a common idea amongst the people of that time, was people redeeming back land with the settlement of a price or paying a set price to redeem a slave to make them their own or for their freedom. And so literally people would go and purchase other people. And, and they would become their slaves. And you had people who messed that up and people who were nasty slave masters and they would treat their slaves terribly. But you also had people, and this is why Christians became, had such a good name, was that they treated their slaves like family. And, and so there was this point of, uh, of making, uh, calling someone out and redeeming someone from slavery into a life of freedom. And so it is with this sort of redemption. The loving act of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes this redemption is this. Every one of us has offended God. Um, I was playing a game on... uh, Just pause here for a moment. I was playing a game on Friday night with my mum and dad. It was a card game. Oh, no, not a card game. It was a a game called Greed. Has anybody played Greed before? If you're a Christian, you should never play Greed. (laughs) Come on. And it basically it's just this game where you, uh, you get a bunch of dice and you roll them and they all have letters on them, G-R-E-E-D. The two E's are different colours and you get a dollar symbol, right? And if you just by chance uh, roll all the dice and it turns out G-R-E-E-D, dollar, that means you get like 5,000 points or something incredible, all right? But uh, we got to that point and, uh, and suddenly mum's like, no, 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 that's not how you play. And, and so we had to look at the rules because the way mum played, and we've played this before too, the way mum played was that you, you keep rolling. So you roll the dice and you might keep a G and that's like 100 points. Then you roll them again, oh, there's an R, add that. Oh, there's an E, add that. Oh, there's another E, and add that. And it was so easy to actually get to the greed dollar sign, right? It was so easy to get that. And so it almost was like it was meaningless. Uh, to get greed with the dollar sign was almost meaningless, right? Uh, and so we looked up the rules, and indeed, it wasn't that you could roll the dice and keep adding to it and make up greed. You actually had to do it in one roll so that it actually, actually would mean something. And how often does it happen? Never. Like, ultimately, it's like once a game, if that. <laughs> uh, that's why it means so much, right? And it's similar with this, right? If God's redemption, if God comes and redeems, it means nothing unless we know what he's redeeming from. Right? It means nothing. So this is where we understand our human condition. Why does God need to redeem a bunch of people who are not his own and make them his own? Why does he need to do that? Because those people, us, have offended him. And their sin and their nature have offended him. And it's not like you've offended your mother. It's not like you've offended your father or your best mate. No, this is the God of the universe. All-powerful, almighty, all-powerful. Knowing this is the holy, righteous God, creator of the universe, and we've offended him. Romans speaks well of the enslavement of sin, and this is, this is what we're redeemed from. Romans 6 verse 12. You've got your Bibles again, skip over there. Romans 6 verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You hear the enslaving sort of language there? Makes you. It's like a slave master who makes you obey its passions. You think slave, you think whips. Makes you. Do what I say, whip. And he's saying, don't let sin reign in your body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Members means literally your body. You bring it to God and say, Right, my body is not my own anymore. It belongs to you. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I'm no longer enslaved to doing whatever I want to do, however I want to do it. I'm actually enslaved to God. And that's a freeing thing. For sin will have no dominion over you. 
since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? What do you just make light of that and go, all right, I'm just going to keep doing whatever I want and God will forgive me? Sweet, no worries. No, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. Pause and think. Sin leads to death. That's just it. You either worship God or you love yourself and sin and it's going to lead to death. That will be the end of you. Or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now, wouldn't it make sense if the offendee, the person who's offended you, would repay whatever they've done to you, right? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be a just sort of action that whoever's offended you or hurt you or wronged you or sinned against you would actually repay you for the wrongdoing that they've made? But the, the crazy thing with God is, and you may or may not know it, but man, just let it refresh your heart. The complete payment to set people free from being enslaved to their sinful nature was once and for all, and it was by God himself. That's nuts. Isn't that nuts? It's not by my sacrifice. It's not by me coming to God and somehow bringing a trump card to God and saying, look what I got. This is going to be help, help me get, get back in the good books with you, God. I'm going to try and work this thing out myself. No, you can't do that. Isn't this intensely amazing that Jesus Christ would come and make sacrifice? God himself would come and make sacrifice for our wrongdoing and our offence that we've caused to God. That's unbelievable. That's what makes him God. It was not a lay-by system where the initial payment is made and then we have to keep making payments until it's finished. We have to keep going to church and we have to keep paying our tithes and we have to keep having quiet times every day and we have to keep all these things so that we can sort of keep up the payments for our sin. No, 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 that's not how it works. Jesus made one sacrifice for all sin for all time. Done. Finished. Dusted. We didn't have to make any more. Before we are Christians, we're enslaved to sin and Christ purchases our freedom. Think about what this means for someone enslaved to the guilt of their conscience. The tyrannical master of sin and its associated guilt that you so desperately try to shut down, but to no avail. Jesus Christ worked on your behalf to pay the ransom price for your freedom. The price was death and his own bloodshed. He paid it. It's finished. And it's going to last forever. He doesn't have to come back. Jesus doesn't have to. It's not like the sin and the brokenness in the world is going to get so bad that Jesus is going to have to come and do it again. No, it's done. No matter how terrible this world gets, the one sacrifice for sin was made and it's done. That gives hope. Because when you see disaster happen around you and maybe in your own life, man, that's hopeful. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he's able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, intercession for them. And Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Are you free today? If you love Jesus and you're following Jesus and he has changed your heart, he's come and redeemed you, are you free today? Do you, really, do you truly sense the freedom in your conscience and the freedom that he's brought for you? Or is it still that you have to dig something in and you have to keep something somehow to try and pay and make yourself good enough? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It means it's going to be tough. It's going to be times where you feel like, you know what, that sin is terribly tempting. Gee, it looks good. But you know that you're more free not sinning than you are getting that one little delight or getting that one little pleasure. 
Number four, redemption cleanses our, sorry, number three, redemption cleanses our conscience from dead works. The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. All the sacrifices, I've said it, I'll say it again, all the sacrifices uh, of the lead up to Jesus could never make right the heart of a person. They could never do it. The old system could only serve as a mere external demonstration of the forgiveness of sins. However, no internal work would be complete. The conscience was still barking, still impure, and still seemingly inescapable. But how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to uh, finish with four, four things. Four ways that we handle these truths. And this is limited, so it's not like the only ways, but this is four ways, I think, that, uh, that plague people. And I'm going to call them um, four roadblocks. In fact, I think it's three. Three roadblocks, sorry. Let me adjust this. Three roadblocks to redemption. I just can't forgive myself. Have you ever got to that point? You ever, has there ever been something so terrible that you've done? Maybe it's that you're 65 years old and when you were 10, you committed a heinous sin that you just can't forgive yourself. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was before you were a Christian. Maybe it was, I mean, the list could go on, but at some point you've done something so terrible and you just cannot forgive yourself. Well, the active heart that does guilt feelings, I mean, our guilt is not just something we're out of control with, right? It's not just something that it comes on us and we have no control over. No, we always have an active heart in what we do, right? Particularly the sins that we commit. There's always an active heart. And so there's always an active guilt feeling. It generates and embraces them for the rush of God-like judgment. It's like you become God and you become the judge over what you've, uh, how terrible whatever you've done is. You sort of elbow God out of the judgment seat because you know yourself better than he does. God, you don't know me. You don't know how terrible I am. You don't know how terrible that was. You become judge, right? Having judged, you've made your judgment. You feel absolutely terrible. You punish yourself with guilt feelings, paying for our own sufferings and obviating the cross. That means just forgetting the cross. Jesus Christ's suffering was not enough. So I need to make a few payments myself. Doesn't work. I don't know if you've noticed, but it doesn't work. You still see 65, 70-year-olds with that same plaguing guilt of their conscience of something that happened 25, 30 years ago. It's not enough. Jesus Christ's blood is enough. A saint is remorseful over sin. This sort of ties in, I think. I just can't forgive myself um, to understanding the difference between... I do not know what's going on here. There we go. Um, the difference between conviction and condemnation. I talked a little bit about this, but I thought I'd uh, look at it a little bit more closely this week. Conviction and condemnation. You know that conviction happens, right? We, I mean, you walk into a judge, a, a courtroom, and conviction happens. People are conviction, convicted for the crime that they did. Okay? But usually that means to, leads to, uh, I've got to repay society somehow. So it might mean jail time, it might mean community service, it might mean something like that. But conviction at a deep soul level cannot be repaid by community service, it can't be repaid by going to church. Uh, Conviction at a deep soul level is different to condemnation. Here's some differences. Conviction is from God. Now God is an intolerant God to your sin. He doesn't want to let you keep sinning and keep doing the wrong things and going against him and going away from his path for life. He doesn't want to let you keep doing that. So he's intolerant to sin. And so he pulls up the blocks and convicts. 
And you know that feeling. You know the sense when I've done something wrong. This isn't right. And that turns into condemnation, which is from Satan, when you keep playing over and over and over in your head whatever you did. Can't forgive myself. I've got to pay it back somehow. Can't ask God's forgiveness. Conviction is from God, but it's what we do in our conviction that matters, right? It's not that we were convicted. Now, when you're convicted, you don't run away and think, oh, I'm feeling guilty. I can't feel guilty. Got to stay away from that. No, conviction is a really healthy thing because it means redemption. If it's worked out right. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to despair. Condemnation, you're an idiot. Why did you do that? Does anybody talk to themselves? Am I the only crazy guy here? Anybody talk to themselves? Such an idiot. Why would you do that? Like, man, I can't believe you did that. You ever do that? Leads to despair, doesn't it? Man, that's hopeless. Conviction leads to life because in conviction, you realize that what you've done is wrong and know that you can't do anything about it. And so instead, you lean heavily on Jesus. Jesus, what you've done is, the, is my only hope here. What you're doing right now is my only hope here. Conviction ends in joy. This has changed, this has transformed for me over the last few years uh, where I was often in condemnation land. I was often just going over and over the terrible things I'd done and I couldn't be free. I could, my conscience could not be cleared of what I'd done and it was just, a, it was, it's enslaving. It's like a jail cell and you can't see out. It's like there's no hope. You can't actually see out and see the light of day uh, to see that there's any way to deal with this. Even, I, I even come to God. I'd be like, God, I feel like such an idiot. Why did I do that? And you're condemning yourself over and over and over again. And it changed for me when I... There's a bunch of stuff that's happened, right? But uh, listening to Pete's preaching, particularly on idolatry, and when you're dealing with sin and you smash the idol and you deal with the idol and you're actually free, so you don't have to keep going back to it again and again and again. Conviction ends in joy because you've leaned on Jesus to deal with what you couldn't deal with yourself. And that's joy. Because it's moved, the, uh, the judgment that was meant for me has moved to Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, you move on and you actually find joy in God's forgiveness. Conviction makes us want to change. And for some, this is, uh, this is like, uh, you, can't, you can't talk about conviction, you can't talk about when you feel bad or when you've been challenged on something this means that no person in the church can ever come and talk to you about something that's going wrong. Um, that it's, you know, it, it makes you believe that you can't change. That's condemnation. Conviction is where we can have healthy relationship with one another. We feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's God, right? God convicting us so that we would lean on Jesus and not on ourselves. And it makes us want to change. Man, when I felt free, when I felt the, the, literally the freedom that came because of what Christ had done, it made me want to confront all those things that I never wanted to confront. makes me want to change. don't know if you do that. If you ever felt God change something in your life and transform something in your life, so much so that it makes you want to go back for more. <laughs> it's amazing. Conviction leads to new identity in Christ. Condemnation leads to old identity and sin. Condemnation makes you think you're still a slave to sin and you're never going to get out of this thing. It's not going to happen. Conviction that leans on Jesus Christ leads to a new identity in Christ. I'm no longer the old person that I was. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I no longer depend upon myself to deal with what I've done wrong. I actually depend on Jesus Christ. It's my only hope. Conviction brings specific awareness of sin. I talked a bit about this last week. Condemnation brings vague uncertainty about sin. It's like you come to God and it's like, no, I don't know why I feel guilty. Um, I'll think of something. Oh, I lied. I'm sorry, God. Oh, God, forgive me for being proud. Well, that's pretty vague. <laughs> How are you proud? 
well, I was arrogant in the way I spoke to my students. God, forgive me for, I mean, you, you can be as vague as you want, and that's condemnation. That doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to the actual change that's necessary. Conviction brings specific awareness of sin. God, forgive me for mistreating my wife for the way I shouted at her, and I shouldn't have. God, forgive me for <clears throat> getting angry quickly with my children. Can you see how specific that is? I yelled at them. I'm sorry for that, God. It's not like, God, forgive me for my anger. No, <laughs> that's vague. That's vague territory. <laughs> Get specific. That brings about the change that's necessary. Conviction looks to Jesus. Condemnation looks to self. Conviction is a blessing. Condemnation is a burden. I wonder how many of us sitting here today are under the burden, the weight of condemnation. What you need is to do what's appropriate in your guilt and your conviction. Let's turn to Jesus, lean heavily on Jesus. Here's the second one. I haven't sinned. The words I can't do whatever, I, sorry, I can do whatever I want sort of come to mind in this one. I haven't sinned. I work out a way to make sure that whatever I did wasn't actually a sin and I'll justify why I did it so that I feel good about doing it next time. <laughs> I haven't sinned. Oh, that's a bad feeling. Guilt, that, ooh, don't go near that. When wrongdoing is not viewed in relation to God, we haven't offended anyone. So we've no reason to feel guilt. Or the guilt that we feel is based upon my own or someone else's making of what's right or what's wrong. However, when wrongdoing is viewed in relation to God, that is when God reveals to us his standards for right and wrong, and it's him we have offended, and it's him we must find peace again. Now, if it stops here, the results are disastrous. Remember, it's not whether you feel guilty or not, but what you do in your guilt that matters. It's not whether you feel conviction or not, it's what you do in that conviction that matters. Whether you turn to self or whether you turn to Christ. And put your trust in him. Now, isn't the forgiveness that he offers far sweeter when we know the depth of the sin and the offense against God? Isn't that, that that's like greed with the dollar sign once in every five games. Man, that means a lot. <laughs> isn't the forgiveness of God so, so much deeper and so much better when you realize the depth of your offense against God? And you own it and say, God, I'm, I've done the wrong thing. I humbly come to you. Trust in Christ. 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God won't forgive me for how bad I've been. This is the third one. God won't forgive me for how bad I've been. That troubling act you committed back when you were a kid or a teenager or that habitual sin you find yourself in day after day after day. I found a, um, a sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's a, a dead preacher now, uh, but he, he would preach a strong sermon and uh, took a quote from it. Here's what it said. He looks to the law of God and while he looks in that direction, he will certainly conclude that there is no pardon for the law knows nothing of forgiveness. It is, do this and you shall live, disobey and you shall die. To convict and to condemn is, the law, is what the law was sent for. By the law is the knowledge of sin, and by its power sinners are shut up in the prison house of despair, from which only the Lord Jesus can deliver. What the law asserts, the understanding also supports, for within the awakened man, the man who's feeling the weight of his conscience and conviction, uh, there is memory of his past offences, and on account of these his conscience passes judgment upon his soul and condemns it even as the law does. God must punish the wickedness, is the utterance of his conscience. Here we're not the judge of all the earth. Uh, sorry, here we're not the judge of all the earth if he did not do right, and if he does right, he must visit my transgressions with the threatened penalty. You sensing the weight and the burden here? Like the jail cell? Thus the thunder of Sinai is echoed by conscience. Meanwhile, many natural impressions and instincts assist and increase the clamors of conscience. For the man knows within himself, as a result of observation and experience, that sin must bring its own punishment. 
He perceives that is a knife which cuts the hand of him that handles it, a sword that kills the man who fights with it. He feels that he cannot himself readily pass by offences committed by his fellow men and so he concludes that the Lord cannot willingly forgive. He can't forgive their sins. Why would he forgive me? Done something terrible. That part of hardness of his heart goes to deepen the conviction that God will not pass by his sin and he is therefore terribly dismayed and hopeless of mercy. God wouldn't do that. He's not that kind. Like everything else I'm sweet with, but that one thing, no way. God, no, he wouldn't forgive that. That same evil spirit, sorry, meanwhile the devil comes in with all the horrors of the infernal pit, hell, and threatens speedy destruction. That same evil spirit who once pictured sin in glowing colours and set before the sinner the pleasurableness of unrighteousness now comes in and turns accuser forestalls the final sentence and hardens the man's heart by the assurance that there is no hope for you. Bunyan very aptly pictures Diabolus when he was attacking the town of Mansoul as making Captain Past Hope unfurled the red colours which were carried by Mr Despair and he also speaks of the roaring of the tyrant's train which sounded forth terribly, especially by night, so that the men of Mansoul had always in their ears the sound of hellfire, hellfire, and all this to keep them from submitting to their gracious prince. Thus, for once, the devil craftily cooperates with the law of God and with conscience. These would drive men to despair, but Satan would go further and compel them to despair as touching the Lord himself, so as to believe that pardon for transgression is quite impossible. The convinced sinner is able to believe that mercy may be shown to others, but as for himself, he signs his own death warrant and labours under the full persuasion that the acts of God's mercy can never extend to him. No stocks can hold a man so fast as his own guilty fears. The hangman's whip never tortured men so cruelly as does an awakened conscience. But here's the good news. And you've, you've got to get this. Here's the good news. That God doesn't just forgive you. He remembers your sins no more. It's not like the argument where you get into the argument and suddenly they bring up something from five years ago. You did this to me. I still can't forgive you. God doesn't do that. He remembers your sin no more. And he takes your sins and redeems them and makes it something good. The mess of your life, the things you've messed up totally, maybe even the things that someone has messed you up totally, he takes that and actually redeems it and makes it something good. That's what he's on about. Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God is intolerant to your sin, but very tolerant. Because he patiently waits with long suffering, showing mercy upon mercy, and keeps inviting you back. Isn't that amazing? What of the tolerance of God? And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's a promise. God promises to remember your sins no more. That thing you did 15, 20, 25 years ago, he remembers no more. You come to him, you repent, you ask for forgiveness, he remembers no more. And finally, redemption moves us to serve the living God. When your conscience is purified, it translates to being the mark of a Christian. When you have internal change, remember I talked about being a Christian, isn't just slapping a name on? I'm a Christian. No, God comes and makes you a Christian. God comes and changes your heart. God comes and clears your conscience through his son, Jesus Christ, and his blood so that it's forward moving, right? We don't just sit in glory in, uh, in our forgiveness. No, it's so that we can continue pouring out good works that would glorify him and not ourselves. So this internal work of purification becomes external. He writes the law on people's hearts and that overflows in the way we live at home, at work, at school or at the movies, in the way that we genuinely love God and see him at work in every facet of our lives. So in conclusion, what's your response to hearing this today? Perhaps it served so that your worship of Jesus would be clearer and he would be seen as far greater than you previously imagined.
I hope it's done that in some, someone. The work of Jesus Christ, the blood that he said is, man, is it good. Man, is it valuable. Perhaps you never knew that Jesus' sacrifice accomplished so much and now you realise how personal it's become. I've offended God. I can't do anything about it. I can only trust Jesus. That's good news. And finally, Jesus' sacrifice, for it to take full effect in you, you need to repent and believe that he is God and that you're not. That Jesus' bloodshed is enough to cleanse you from your sin and transform your life to be the one that no longer serves yourself and your own ends, but instead takes great delight in serving God and his ends. That's when the transforming work of Christ happens. He is God and I am not. Let's pray. God, uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable that you uh, would bring people who've offended you and who've done wrong against you, you would bring them and make them your own. What I didn't talk about this morning, guys, is that you're a father and you adopt people into your family all the time and you love them. It comes at great cost to you, the cost of your son and his blood poured out for us. And so, Jesus, today, I pray that um, for the haunting conscience that, God, you would begin to set them free. Begin the process of the freedom that truly comes when they don't take the place of forgiver, but they trust you to do that. The place that they don't uh, have to handle their own sin, but they trust you to do that, Jesus. And that starts the process of becoming clean, becoming pure. I pray that the past sin, the sin that happened 25, 30 years ago, God, come and do the precious work of cleansing their conscience. God, for the present, right now, where you convict us, God, I pray that change would come about so that we would learn to heavily lean on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his blood that's been shed for us, not on ourselves, that we would repent quickly, that we wouldn't try to take matters in our own hands, God, that we'd repent quickly, we'd turn away and we'd follow you. God, thank you for your most loving act. Thank you for your kindness Thank you that you show mercy upon us day after day and that in your kindness you forget our sin. You don't remember it. You're a good dad. You're an amazing God. Amen.